Thank you for downloading the Root Simple Podcast, your guide to gardening, urban homesteading, and home economics. I'm Eric Knudsen, and I'm joined by Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Act for a Post-Consumer World. This week, Kelly will discuss her redesign of our front yard using some of the ideas from Thomas Rayner and Claudia West's book, Planting in a Post-Wild World. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Eric. How are you? All right. I'm all very relaxed in our new podcasting studio. We have some new comfortable chairs. (laughs) (laughs) studio. Anyways, well, the topic is the front yard, and perhaps I should describe the front yard a little little bit first. It's kind of quirky. We're on a street in which there is a small hill on one side of the street, and the other side is flat. So all the houses on our side of the street are about 30, 35 feet above the street level. And we have a cat wandering around in the background as usual. Making small noises. Making small noises. Uh, So at any rate, the houses on this side are up a little hill. And I think the hill's artificial, don't you? We don't know. It's a It's, it's certainly a natural looking. It doesn't look natural. It's very strange because... It's one block long. <laughs> it it's just one, block to be long, one block long. And they're all little tiny... 1920s bungalows perched on both up, side. Perched, perched up at the top of the hill. And danger- we all look down on our neighbors. Yeah. Uh, metaphor- not metaphorically speaking, so of course. <laughs> our neighbors are very nice. Well, the, the problem, though, is that having this kind of steep, very small hill makes... So we have a steep front yard, in other words. Yeah, it's a steep front yard. With a staircase up to the front door of the house. That's hard to actually stand on. In order to work. to work with it, <laughs> it makes everything hard. We were kind of foolish when we moved into our house. I think because we we'd never been homeowners before, and we didn't really think things through. Buying a fixer upper on a slope, on a hill, with no back access. It's not like there's a back alley. Some houses have that; they'll be on a hill, but you can go around back or something. Everything that we've done to this house has had to been hauled up the 30 stairs, whether it was lumber or the new clawfoot bathtub or the hundreds and hundreds of bags of soil and stuff that we've brought in, uh, rocks, bricks, lumber, all of it, groceries, day to day, everything gets hauled up the hill. Uh, so the the front slope is no different and it makes everything a little bit harder to do. I, I envy people with flat front yard sometimes not the least that they can just put a chair out there and sit there and talk to the neighbors we would roll down the hill that's the bad side the good side is there's sort of a view from the front porch which is nice yeah you do get addicted i think to being above it all Uh, it feels a little safer you know not that i'm real paranoid about such things but i don't know being down on the street now to me seems so open your, your front door is right there by the sidewalk and and you have to do a little pilgrimage to get to our front door, and it just feels a little bit more remote. It's nice in the middle of a city to feel that way. Well, why don't we describe the the various stages that the yard has gone through? When we first moved here, it was covered in ice plant and Dying failed plant. and failed retaining structures. Wall <laughs> would be too big a word to use. It was for just them. all tumble down and sad, and there was the 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 declining um, apricot tree at the top. That's right. That that didn't last. It was kind of like a poodle. It only had it only had foliage at the very ends of its branches, like a poodle tail. Apricot trees have a kind of a short lifespan. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that, like maybe fifteen years or so. So I think it was just at the end of its life. What was the first thing that we did? I can't even remember. Well, it's all kind of a blur. But we discovered soon after we moved in that we needed to reinforce the foundation. Uh, Again, because we were on the hill and the foundation was all crumbly and made of like sand and chewing gum or something like that. And so we had to spend a lot of money to pour a lot of concrete um, around the front of the house to keep it from sliding down the slope in the next earthquake or um, rainstorm. So that meant tearing out everything in the front yard. So whatever, I don't know if we really did much before that, but anything we would have done would have been destroyed anyway. So it was barren dirt when it was all done. And then that excavation happened and lots of dirt 
got thrown around the hillside. Yeah, it's like the, it, you know, any any kind of soil structure that may have been there um, existing underneath the ice plant. I mean, I think what we're dealing with is an artificial hill to begin with, maybe dug out of the Silver Lake Reservoir, who knows? We're not far from that fake lake. Um so it, whether if the hill was natural or not, I kind of think it was not. So it was already disturbed soil. Whatever healing it had done over the almost 100 years the house had been there before we moved in was destroyed when we tore up the, the whole hill because they, they disgorged the deep dirt from underneath the house down the front of the hill and they dug trenches and stomped on everything so it was just a mess and it, that that stays as a legacy when I dig around on the front hill I'm really surprised by how many different soil textures I find out there in a very small space we're talking about a space that's 15 feet across and oh, 20 or more feet up depending on where if you go all the way to the house foundations maybe 25 feet up but it's it's a hundred percent clay in some places. It's like you could just make a pot out of a handful of what you pull up. Other places, the soil is surprisingly nice, um, which is, I think, the product of us mulching for 10, 15 years in that spot. Uh, it's, 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 it's like real soil. <laughs> and then in other places, it's like remnants of backfill projects. So it's a mix of sand and gravel. All three kinds of soil existing in this tiny spot uh, and that's going to be one of the challenges going forward. Like, are my plants going to be able to deal with these various conditions? It should be said that at a certain point, I terraced the yard and put oh. in landscape timbers made out of pressure-treated lumber. They're six by eight by eight foot. Like railway ties, kind of? They're they're like them, but they're not. They're pressure-treated They're not as poisonous. Lumber. They're not it's, soaked with creosote like exactly. the old railway not ties. So However, I kind of regret that material because it does have a lifespan and it is basically reached the end of its lifespan and those timbers are actually very expensive now i think they were cheaper when i put them in but i priced those six by eight by eight foot timbers now at they're like 95 dollars uh, yeah they were 90 they're it's 90 dollars a piece, a piece. Yeah. what i wish i had used originally was urbanite which is uh, broken concrete and uh, kind of bit the bullet and made some walls out of that. Uh, it would have lasted a lot longer, or some sort of um, masonry structure well, would now, have been of course, appropriate. That that's a big project. When you put in any kind of masonry, whether it be urbanite or brick or rock or whatever, you need to dig footings and and lay concrete. Exactly. And so we didn't do that when we first moved in, and and now we're older and wiser, and yet. We're not wiser, I guess, and we didn't. I, I write. I wrote about that in our post a bit. Our um, attitude, our heck with it attitude. What I mean, do you think this is going to be a problem that we decided not to bite the bullet and do it, quote unquote, right this time? I don't want to think about it. <laughs> We're just in denial. I'm in denial about it. It's a river in Egypt. Yeah. Okay, so we're in denial about this. The, um, you know, the. I mean the. The ties or the, the the whatever you call the lumber is not entirely rotten yet, but it's on its way out. Some people with the slopes of our pitch don't have retaining walls at all. Some people do. Um, the people without retaining walls seem to be okay. I don't know. Um, we did replace, you know, like Eric mentioned, we replaced a really rotten one. And we shored up some others with with um, pole to keep them from kind of they've been wanting to uh, fall forward a little bit. So I mean I think it's good for a few more years. Then we might be hoisted by our own petard, and we might need to dig everything up and do it right. Or you know who knows? I, I mean, think I can keep shoring it up. That's we can my just plan. keep shoring it up. <laughs> I, I it's it's lazy, but you know the expense of it and and just the labor of it. It's a small job, the kind of job that doesn't really attract contractors. Um, but it's a little bit large for just us to do. And you know, Eric's had his his feet have been hurting him with his plantar fasciitis, and um, I'm lazy. I don't know. We just didn't feel like engaging with a huge project, and I hope it's going to be okay. It'll be okay. You know, and I'm hoping the plants will stabilize the soil a lot. I'm going to have like a very dense covering of plants, and I hope 
kind of like a prairie, like we'll all have a dense mat of roots that keeps everything still. Speaking of plants, what was the problem with the mini orchard idea? This was a planting that we did several years ago, kind of the first planting after the foundation work had no, been done. No, 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 you're skipping something. The After we planted, after the foundation, we planted drought-tolerant shrubbery Mexican sage. Like Mexican sage and lavender, lantana. As I wrote in our in our posts, it was like our first foray really when we first moved in with plants. We didn't, you know, we, we had been apartment dwellers before this. So we didn't really know anything about plants. In the backyard, we were learning about garden vegetable, um, garden vegetabling, <laughs> vegetable gardening. And in the front, we were learning about um, like decorative landscape plants. We were sort of still separating those as concepts at that time. And uh, you know, we we were researching plants that were, um, you know, who would do well in our environment. So we were looking at those drought-tolerant Mediterranean perennial plants. We weren't really into native plants yet, as, but we did choose a, like a, a bunch of, of tough shrubs, basically, which is a very common um, look in our neighborhood, and, and planted them in rows on the terraces. So that's what we had first was shrubs. Then And so they just sort of sat there. They were more or less decorative. Sometimes they looked better than others. I think that towards the end, they started to get a little overgrown. You know, some of them die and some of them go crazy and all that typical stuff with perennials that you have to deal with. Then we got more food obsessed. So over over the course of years, we were growing more and more food in the yard, in the backyard, in the side yards and containers. At the top of the hill, the front hill, we had a vegetable bed, but the front slope, oh, and we were growing food down in the bottom in the parkway. Remember, we had those vegetable beds down there. So we were really getting obsessed with maximizing vegetable production in the yard. And the only place we had not colonized yet for that was the was the slope. And that's when we decided to put in an, a mini orchard. And why didn't that orchard work? Huh. There's so many reasons. I don't know. Um, I, you know, it's nice to wave a flag and blame climate change. It was climate change, not our incompetence. The, so I think the, the, the trees we chose, we paid attention to chill hours on the trees. They should have been okay here. But I think it, it's been so hot and so dry. It's just been very, very hard on especially stone fruit who really, I think, want to live somewhere a little cooler than this. So our our stone fruit just struggled and struggled, and also the quince, just so sad. Uh, and I realized, you know, not, it wasn't until we did these posts that I looked back to see how old these trees were, and they really are, they were plenty old. We started that project in 2008, and those trees should have really been they much have bigger. Been fruiting. Much bigger, not just fruiting, but they should have been you know, uh, they all look like they were planted two years ago. They were just not happy plants. It was survival of the fittest, though, because the pomegranate and the fig are doing just fine. Yeah. So we kept them. Yes, the the kind of desert biblical plants, the de the the olive, the fig, the palm. They're they're do doing really really well, and so we're kind of sticking with those tough tough plants, uh, and decided that we just n need to be trying to nurse along the ailing fruit trees anymore. There were other problems. I mean, I think our soil is not great. Um, there's zinc in it, which some plants don't like. We, um, we mulched heavily. We tried our best. We had a drip system. We, we studied charts of recommended water rates. You know, we, we did some uh, amendments of different sorts, different kinds of potions for the, for the trees. Um, nothing made them happy. I just think they weren't meant to be there in the end. So we decided to take them out. And that was a big... Leaving the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive. Yeah, the, the... yeah. The... Which, I'll, as an aside, I'll say, and I know a lot of people aren't in climates where you can grow those particular trees, but they are actually more striking, I, I think, than the... I mean, you know, um, a a stone fruit tree looks nice when it's in bloom, and it looks okay when it's leafed out. But I just have to say the olive, the pomegranate, and the fig are more striking in their foliage. I think they're actually a little prettier uh, year-round. Honestly, if I had to choose, uh, maybe I'm making some enemies here, but if I had to choose between those set of trees and then the 
the stone fruit trees we had, I think I'd, I'd go with the, they all have the fig and the pomegranate. Mm-hmm. And that was an aside. Back to the, the topic at hand, though, and I think there was an extractive mentality with the yes. front yard, too, that was a bit of a problem. I think, yeah, like, like a, on a philosophical level, it started to bother us, the front yard. It was like... Greed is the word. It was greed. It was like, you know, we want more, 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 more out of this yard, and... Uh, and there's we, not really any yeah, point it, it to didn't, that. And then, of course, soil problems. So there's some soil toxicity, too. We, I, we I forget about that. that. Yeah, yeah, with the zinc. But yeah, the, yeah, and also aesthetics. I mean, it just wasn't a good aesthetic. Um, yeah, it, it didn't hold together. And, and... Aesthetics are important in the front yard. Very important. We had, I think, when we decided to put in the... You know, when we had the, the shrubbery, which just sort of conformed to the neighborhood norms, that was one thing. But when we put in the, the fruit trees, I think that was a moment where we were just like kind of saying, you know, to heck with it. This is what we're doing. Our yard is about food production. You guys deal with it. But nobody complained because we live in a great neighborhood. But I think just for us, it wasn't the yard wasn't giving us any joy. You come up the stairs when you come home and there's nothing to look at, nothing didn't to appreciate. Look I mean, I think you can do fruit trees oh, yeah. attractively, I've definitely. We should say orchards. that, but you you still have, you have to think like a designer would. And yeah. I think the problem was that there was just a jumble of fruit trees and it didn't make structural sense. And now that you've removed them, actually, you can see the pomegranate better. Which, yeah, it's highlighted the pomegranate tree, which, which is, is lives pretty. at the top of the hill. It's a very pretty tree. Yeah, so it becomes the queen of the hill and and there's nothing else there. So it, it looks It's good. not competing with other trees. Yeah, because well, it, kind of it was just kind of a mass. Claustrophobic. And, yeah. yeah. And I talked about that in one of the posts. Was this, this is this notion um, called legibility, which I learned from. Let's talk about that. What is legibility? Yeah. Um, in in the book that I'm all obsessed with, Planting in a Post-Wild Wild World by Thomas Rainier and Claudia West, uh, they talk about legibility as... How would you put it? It's it's when you look at a landscape and you can understand it all in a glance, when you don't have confusing or tangled or hidden or obscure patches, uh, you know, there's like an order and um, openness to the landscape. It doesn't have to be like military in its precision, like, you know, like the pruned hedges of Versailles, which would be one example of legibility or a zen garden would also be another highly legible landscape which is perhaps why we cherish those kinds of landscapes so much but it can also be something like an open meadow full of little daisies you see it you understand it it uh, it feels good to the eye and the soul to see something that can be comprehended whereas if you look at like a blackberry thicket with some trees struggling to grow out of it surrounded by weeds that isn't a comfortable thing to look at. That you wonder, things look like they're competing and uncomfortable. You wonder if there's anything hiding in there. Your your back brain starts to think about predators and spiders and things like that. Uh, in a in a, a homeowner situation, tangled, uh, messy landscapes make you think about um, decrepit, um, you know, like a decrepit landscape, a haunted house, a shut-in's house, a hoarder's house. These are the kind of landscapes that get you in trouble with the neighbors. And we were pushing that with our with our unhealthy fruit trees. We, you know, we first we didn't plant anything under them; it was just mulch. Towards the end, we had started trying to plant things underneath them, but it didn't help. And it was just a confusing space where the eye had nowhere to rest and nothing to enjoy. You know, when it looked at it. We've also not talked about the giant cactus, which also was a problem. <laughs> the legibility we had. Well, I just want to clarify legibility oh, yeah. for a second. I I think aesthetically, it's like looking at a work of art and not necessarily knowing what it's about, but knowing what it's trying to say. So when you look at the landscape, it's saying meadow, and you're mm -hmm. thinking meadow, or you're thinking uh, whatever whatever else. But you know what it's trying to say, rather than this just jumble of stuff that just doesn't hold together yeah. in some aesthetic sense. Yeah. I mean, mystery is fine, but you don't want confusion and, and unclarity. I mean, I mean, to be clear, you could do this with an edible landscape. Too. Yes. It could be legible yeah, as well. The, yeah. Like, um, like a, you know, your, your classic potager is a highly legible edible landscape. It's not one that's right or wrong. It's just that it's it's legible. Legible yes. and illegible are the, are the, is the issue. Yes, and legible just tends to get 
you along further with the neighbors. Which is important, especially the front yard. But especially the front yard. Yeah, the backyard I want to be more legible too, but that's a whole other like we discussion. Talked a few weeks ago, um, uh, we talked to um, uh, Matsubo Fukuoko's student. Larry Korn. Larry Korn. And he, and now uh, Fukuoko talked about, you know, he had this, he, he had kind of an illegible way of growing <laughs> in a way. He would just toss seeds everywhere and he let plants grow as they wanted to grow. And as a result, the way it was described was that his food garden was just growing wild um, amongst his orchards. And you would almost literally have to walk around his place with a machete to get through the growth. And you would search for your food um, and you know there'd be beans growing in one corner and there'd be some pumpkins growing somewhere else and you would just find them and grow them and it was extremely bountiful and it sounds wonderful in many ways but it was not a legible landscape but it was one that worked very well and was an interesting relationship to the land larry after his experience in in japan came back and ended up being a, a landscape designer in southern in northern california and i asked him if he ever used those principles for landscape design, he was like, well, no, I can't, right? Because you can't have that level of wildness in a front yard. You can't say to a client, I'm just going to throw a bunch of seeds in the front yard and we'll see what happens. Usually it sort of levels out after about three years and starts making some sense. You know, you, you can't do that. Um, so whether or not it's, you know, I, I'm not saying there's not other, there, there's other ways to grow plants and maybe even better ways to grow plants and design landscapes in terms of natural systems and all of nature. But in an urban environment, when you're dealing with authorities and you're dealing with neighbors, you have to make compromises and legibility goes a long way towards making everybody happy. It's like, it, but it's a subtle point. I mean, this is that whole issue of what is post wild, right? With the title of that book, because it's sort of like you're creating a landscape that looks wild, but actually isn't. Mm -hmm. It has like wild tropes and it has some of the blessings that the wild brings. It brings diversity, like biodiversity. It, it does work towards um, feeding and housing critters, which lawns and roses just do not do. You know, so it does a lot of the good things that, uh, that a wild landscape does. Um, but it it's more like it's mimicking the functions of a wild landscape than actually being a wild landscape and in and in such a way it's sort of better for us but maybe not as good for the rest of the world but it's a really good compromise it's a really good place to be and it's so much better than where we are now with our lifeless lawn-based landscapes but there was a bit of creative destruction involved in the hmm. um in the, the, the clearing out of this front yard, right? We had to edit some stuff. Edit, we some... cleared it. We just cleared it. Well, there was the cactus, which I was going to talk about the... Yeah, why was it? There was a huge prickly pear cactus <laughs> that, that blo actually blocked the view from the street of the whole Eventually, slope, it didn't basically. start out that way. I mean, because we're talking about, we've been here for a long time and all of the, the planting started early. I, I think when we... After the slope was denuded during the foundation work and I planted those first shrubs, there were a few pads, prickly pear pads jammed in the ground, which the workers had done after the, I think there was a prickly pear on our premises somewhere. And they, they knew prickly pear is an important plant. And so they set aside the pads and the pads of a prickly pear, um, that's how you grow a new prickly pear is you just stick a pad in the ground. They are tough and they are tenacious. And so when the workers left, they they left some pads in the ground to grow more prickly pear, uh, and we let them go. Um, and f you know, kind of move forward many years. I, I think I we had removed some of them, but we had left one, and it was it was modest and it was cute. It was down with the other shrubs. It kind of made sense. But after we plant in that like last five year stretch or so, after we had planted the fruit trees, the prickly pear just started exponential growth. It just, I mean, I think it is an exponential system. As it gets bigger, it gets bigger faster. Uh, and so it became huge, just, just out of the blue, like in a sneaky way. So we didn't even notice how big it was getting. 
um, because we didn't care much about the slope because we didn't like the slope much. So we didn't look at the slope really carefully. And kind of while our eyes were half closed, the prickly pear took over the world. So it was on um, the second terrace up, but it ended up just blocking the entire slope. So the entire slope just became, there's just a wall of prickly pear. So talk about zero legibility. You couldn't even see our slope, but that was for the best because what was behind the prickly pear was much uglier than what was in front of the prickly pear. Prickly pear on its own is a fairly attractive plant. Problem was, is that the plant got so big that the fruit and the young paths, which is what we like to eat off of it, it's an edible plant and one we like very much, all ended up growing so high up that we couldn't get them. We couldn't harvest them anymore. And you don't lean a ladder against a prickly pear and try to pick stuff. So you have to keep a prickly pear um, uh, pruned so that it, everything's within easy reach because you just can't deal with it if it gets too big. So we had this problem where we had this prickly pear that taken over the world. We could no longer eat from it. And it was getting so big that it was beginning to drop fruit and pads onto the sidewalk because that's how it reproduces. It stretches out its arms and they get, they're very heavy. The pads are very, very heavy, um, filled with water. And they, when, uh, when the weight gets to be too much, they, they break off from the mass of the, of the plant and they land on the ground and they root and they make new plants. So you out, out in the wild, you get these massive stands of prickly pear plants. They could just stretch for miles. And ours was trying to do that as well as it could on our sidewalk, which was a, a mess and a hazard. So we had a lot of issues. By the time we finally slapped ourselves awake and said, we've got to do something with this front yard. This is ridiculous. Um, and so it wasn't that emotionally traumatic to just admit that we had made mistakes. We'd been neglectful of our front yard. We had hoped that it would improve when it was obviously not improving. We'd let the prickly pear get out of control. We just had to sort of make our confession and take our penance. And we just had to take it all out. Well, Kelly, you just did a blog post today in which you had a number of kind of guiding principles that you used to design the yard. And perhaps we could go through those. Uh, your first principle was related populations, not isolated individuals. I should clarify, these are not my guiding princi principles. These are Rainer and West's oh, yes. guiding principles from but the book. You, I'm not that clever. You adapted their principles. I, I considered these principles when I was designing our yard. I think it's a good set of things to consider when you're working with a space. I think uh, I know what this first one means, though, because... Repeat it for people. It's related populations, not isolated individuals. Yes. And one of the problems with our garden and many gardens is that they're collections of random plants, basically. To put it, you know, not so nicely. They're just a bunch of random plants. Well, it's a, it's actually, it's not really our fault. It's a, it's a longstanding tradition of having plants as specimens. There's a category of specimen trees and specimen plants. And our plants are bred to be showy, you know, not to be functioning members of communities, but to be little divas, right, all by themselves. And so we often think in terms of like, Oh, you know, I want one of those plants in my landscape. You know, you see a plant in someone else's yard, and you go, I want, I have to have a bougainvillea. I have to have a white sage, as I said in my post. Like, that's how I get. I get obsessed with a, a particular kind of plant for who knows why. And then I decide that I'm going to get one and stick it in the yard somewhere. I'm going to find a place in my yard for this plant. That that happens a lot, I think, to a lot of us. There's it, it seems to be like most of our motivations are either, like I have a hole that I have to fill. What can go there? You know, like I've got an ugly, um, you know, power box or a neighbor's view or something that I need to cover. I need a plant for this situation, or I really love this plant and I'm going to figure out where to put it in my yard. And these are not like system thinking kind of ways of approaching the yard. These are fairly one-off, shallow ways of approaching the yard. And that's what leads us to trouble. So what you end up with when you, you see plants as individuals, as specimens, uh, you end up with plants kind of floating floating in your yard, kind of like islands in an archipelago, you know, like they're in the sea. Like if you have a mulched yard, you know, you have a lavender bush and then three feet of mulch and then another kind of bush and then another few feet of mulch. Or maybe if you live somewhere uh, wetter, it's lawn. You have shrubs coming out of a lawn with a lawn 
dividing up the space between them, they have no relationship to each other. And they don't really have any particular relationship to your yard or your land. They're just there to look good. How did you go about finding related populations? Well, we should... I, in sh- the short answer is I went to our local native plant nursery and I worked within the vocabulary of our local natives because that's a small palette to work from. It's fewer choices. We might want to get into that more later uh, about the native versus exotic debate. But in short, I, I use native plants because if you find natives that already work together in certain kinds of zones, then you, you, know, you know that you're ahead of the game a bit. But the, the ta- Rainer and West talk about thinking about your yard not as, as individuals, the plants in your yard not as individuals, but as constituents of a system that's sort of a self-supporting system. Like if you think about, like even a vacant lot, have you ever seen a vacant lot in full flower? Like, you know, it's just been left alone and the various kinds of weeds and whatnot blows in there. And then one spring, you're just driving by and you look over and this this vacant lot is beautiful. And there's hundreds of species, or not, not maybe hundreds, but maybe like up to 100 species growing in there. Just every niche, every every bit of soil is colonized because plants work cooperatively with each other. We, you know, we tend to think of them as being competitive, but they're really not. They like to work with each other. There's low plants that like the shade of the taller plants. There's plants that like to kind of hunker down, but send their, send their flowers shooting up through the leaves of other plants. So if you think about a meadow in full bloom or the area, you know, or like a wetland, or there's so many places where Plants live in a really, really thick biodiversity, and and these are systems, interdependent, interlocking systems, and that's the puzzle that we have to figure out as designers is how to mimic those interdependent, interlocking systems at home with uh, plants that you can get at your nursery. So it's both biological and aesthetic in terms of related, yeah, it's aesthetic too. Related populations. Yeah, the the process is aesthetic. It's it's aesthetic. To some extent, because when they're related, they seem to go together. They, yeah, they seem to go together, like granimals. Like granimals? Do <laughs> you remember granimals? No. A... <laughs> when we were kids, they there was this kids' line of clothing where everything matched. You could choose your oh. own clothing. Okay. Like there was like clothing that had like a lion tag, and any lion tag matched any other lion tag. I see. Or any, uh, you were just wearing like, I don't know, little bow ties or something and you don't, you don't know about so, the granules. <laughs> it would be nice though if, if n- nurseries were cognizant of this granimal <laughs> idea and could oh, group thing. But I'm serious, on. it could group, group, group things by. I wish the whole world was granimaled, you know, but it ain't. Isn't that the gap? But no, no, the gap's confusing. <laughs> but we digress. Well, let's go on back to principle two. You say stress as an asset. So stress that when, again, they say it, not me. Oh, right. <laughs> you make me sound like a genius. Thank you. Um, stress as an asset. That means, it means also like working with what you've got and not fighting against it. So say, you know, you're, the site that you want to work with is, kind of dry and rocky, like instead of leveling it and bringing in a bunch of non, non-local non soil and, and then pumping that full of amendments and then planting a bunch of exotics, you're like, okay, this is a rocky, dry site. What grows around here in rocky, dry sites? And you take a walk and you look around and you see dry hillsides and you're like, oh, these are the kinds of plants that grow here. So you you start to develop a, a system that will work with the, with the conditions as is. And what's interesting about that is that is that it, it creates a real strong sense of place, a real sense of locality. There's this way in which if we keep like just leveling our yards and and heavily you know heavily composting and mulching them and planting exotics all yards just sort of start to look the same, whether they're in Chicago or LA or Argentina. I don't know. They all just sort of start to look the same. Um, and this is, gives you a really strong sense of place. So you have really unique, like I think one of the examples they use is Derek Jarman's Beachside Garden. Which That's is a, a beautiful garden. It's a very famous garden. It just Google Derek, Derek Jarman's garden if he you want to see it. He was a British filmmaker. Yes, he's passed on now, but he... 
had a str- he had a, ca- a cottage on the beach, and it was a very unromantic beach. I think you can see a power plant in the background. Plan, <laughs> yeah, think. and it's rocky. It's like all gravelly, rocky. It's not even. It's not sandy, uh, and windswept. It's in Britain, um, and his garden is all plants that can kind of hunker down and survive the high winds and the salt air and the gravel, and it looks like nowhere else in the world. You know, he could have tried to deny the site. And he could have scraped away the gravel and brought in soil and maybe put up like hedges as wind blocks and tried to plant a lawn or something. But what's the point of that? So instead, he's made something just beautiful and utterly unique. So that's why you work with your site to give it a sense of place and he a actually, sense of uniqueness. He embraced an ugly view. Yeah. Which is something you're told not to do, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Moving on, principle three. Again, this is Rayner and uh, Claudia West's principles. Cover the ground densely by vertically layering plants. This is kind of what the whole book is about in a way, or it's like what I focused on was what, was what I needed to learn about. And this is a part of creating the community, the, the community of plants. Um, the plants sort of stack, kind of like stacking functions in permaculture, the, the plants stack. Um, so you have a a bottom layer that is a kind of a nondescript, maybe, I mean, it could be beautiful, but it's probably going to be a nondescript ground cover that holds the soil, holds water, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then like another level of plants, which are seasonal bloomers that bring in seasonal color, but they have to work along with the ground cover. They have to be useful and coherent even when they're not blooming. You can't bring something in just because it looks really pretty for a month. They they have to have other functionality. And then structural plants, which are like the bones of the garden. Um, and then plants, ephemeral plants that come and go, like um, self-seeding wildflowers and that sort of thing. So there's four four basic levels of plant of, or types of plants that they describe. And you have to figure out how to plant these together to create these these systems that are self-supportive. Um, they shouldn't need as much water and weeding and attention as a traditional garden needs, if you do it right. And they should look good all year round. And move, shall we move on to principle four, which is, we've already talked a little bit about this, but make it attractive and legible. We yeah. talked about legible. I think the attractive is an important yeah, part of it. We've, I mean, we, we cover this in a lot of ways, but yeah, legibility, which we covered. And then um, they talk about the notion of framing, which is a term they use, which we um, knew before I, I read their book. Um, we called it clues to care. Somebody else uses the terminology. And that's when you've got a naturalistic landscape or even a food landscape where things look kind of wild and untamed like you can't like you can't control a squash <laughs> you know things like that you the way you make the way you make uh, it look like somebody's caring for the yard is to do things like invest in good hardscaping and and maintain that so you have Pathways, pathways, clean, tidy pathways. So even if it's crazy off the pathway, the pathway itself is tidy. Things like bird baths and benches also give it that loved, cared for look. If you just have a yard that's just full of waist high plants, people are going to start complaining. But if you have a yard that has has these um, hardscape features, then they're like, huh, well, what's going on here? It gives it gives someone, it gives them pause and, and it lets them consider, well, you know, if there's a bench looking out at some wild plants, you think, oh, is this like a nature area? And people start being able to reconceptualize it and not just thinking that you're a crazy shut-in who can't mow a lawn. Um, oh, speaking of mowing a lawn, one really good way of framing is to use, use if you have some turf in your yard, to use it to good effect. So you have borders or sections of turf uh, that literally frame wilder portions of of your yard. So like the turf will go right up to a very abundant, tall um, stand of wild plants. And and it'll and it'll be a way of doing a pleasant contrast between, you know, the the short green grass and then the abundant texture and height of your wild area. Uh, and it's pleasing to the eye to see those two things together. But it also makes it very clear that you know what you're doing, that you have a plan, and and that keeps everybody calm too. Though 
not to open this can of worms, but in the Southwest, generally not a fan of turf under any circumstances. No, turf really. is not so good. But uh, for you except know, except for public spaces, maybe sports fields, sports things fields. like that. Yeah, but yeah. But I have to remember that we're not the whole world. Like a lot of the temperate world can have a little bit of turf. Exactly. And you know, and in that case, the problem with turf is not water, but it's just that it's not. A, it, it doesn't do a lot for the rest of wildlife. It, you know, it's just it's sort of a it's not exactly dead, not like gravel, but it's, you know, it's not feeding anything. It's just, it's just for the eye. So having less of it is better. Here, uh, we have to, we're going to work with different things, like maybe, um, you know, like we were talking about pathways or compressed, um, decomposed granite or flagstone areas, you know, stoned over pathways, that kind of Spanish style garden, you know, where you have, um, it's a dry garden, but it has a fountain in the center, and it's got either compressed dirt or stone walkways. And then off the walkways, you know, there's like a borders of, of abundant, you know, lavender and such. Like using that kind of vocabulary with native plants is completely possible in a dry landscape. And the last principle, management, not maintenance. That's about like your attitude towards ongoing... Uh, the ongoing keeping of your garden, uh, the traditional it's planning garden. for change, right? You're, you're, you're assuming you're, change. Assuming change is a big part of it. Your, you know, your average landscape requires maintenance. So you have the guys come in to do maintenance. You know, which involves mowing and blowing and raking and watering and pruning Clipping into little balls and, and cutting everything into little balls and spraying herbicides around. And there's all that stuff. That stuff is not done so much in a wild, a post-wild landscape. In a post-wild landscape, it's more on the designer to or to sit with the landscape and observe it, kind of like a captain observing his ship, you know, and which way is the weather blowing and how far are we from shore? You have to think about things in the long term, like what's going on here? You know, that that species that I planted is not doing so well. Maybe I'll need to replace it. Or that species is doing really, really well. Am I going to let it go? Uh, or maybe I have to let it go. You you, you, you do find humility in, in before the plants and you let you let the system work. So you're you're watching the system and when you have to step in like maybe Bermuda grass invades because your system is weak in some way, well then you're going to have to fix that. You're going to have to go out and pull the Bermuda, figure out what went wrong, change your ground cover or whatever so that doesn't happen again. But you shouldn't be out there just mowing and weeding in that kind of mechanical way that we do when we're maintaining a landscape. But I know I've, Thomas Rayner has spoken about this before, that he doesn't believe there's such a thing as a zero maintenance Not landscape. Not at all. No, this is Because some people work. have that idea that I'll just put down gravel yeah. and a couple of succulents and then I don't have to do anything. Yeah, that they find out soon that that's just not true. Uh, we can see that happening all over because and we nor, had... Nor would you want that either, right? Because that's a landscape that's frozen in time that doesn't change. Well, some people like that. I know some people like that. So that's but not that is a goal for some people. I guess so. No, but you find out that that's impossible. I mean, you know, you put down the gravel and the succulents, and the next thing you know, that there's there's weeds popping up through the plastic underneath your gravel, which the contractor said wouldn't happen, but it does because you know life wants to assert itself, and and you have to deal with it anyway. Uh, that's the the law. That's what I think. I talked about that in my post today. Was that there's nothing harder than landscape design. It's something that's always intimidated me and something I've tried to avoid because I recognized how hard it is. All design is tricky. All design takes skill and a good eye. Like whether you're laying out a web page or uh, designing a dress or a building, all, all design takes a lot of finesse. But I've always thought that landscape design is particularly tricky because of the many variables involved. Not only is there this huge vocabulary of plants, but the plants change in time, right? And they, they change seasonally. They change from when they're young to when they're mature. They change color. They drop their leaves. Sometimes they're blooming. Sometimes they're not. So your garden is a time-based installation. Uh, if you are an interior designer, you bring in your furniture, you arrange your room, and you walk away, and 
that's how it stays. If you're a gardener, you bring in your plants, you plant them, it looks one way when you first plant them. Uh, six months later, it looks entirely different. And a year later, it looks different yet again. So you, you've got so much to deal with. This, the time-basedness of it is what blows me away. It's more like music than than visual art in that sense. I think people think that it's a visual art that you're like it's like you're making a painting or something, but mm -hmm. in fact you're composing you're composing a symphony that or is changes it jazz? over time. Or I mean, is it jazz? It's, yeah, it's, right. It's very improvisational, yeah. Yeah. and you've got to go with it when it changes. And unexpected things happen. I guess that would be the jazz analogy. Yeah, yeah, and but it's the jazz like the jazz concert that never ends. <laughs> <laughs> but know. it's the good kind of jazz, not the jacuzzi jazz. Yeah, it's good. Yes. It's good jazz. <laughs> uh, so it's hard. The last thing here you have is worthy of several podcasts. Maybe we can have some guests to talk about this, but natives versus exotics. Right. I don't think we want to get too deep in that, but you, you mostly went with native plants in the front yard. Yeah. Because I've, as I've already mentioned, it's it, it just made it easier to have a limited vocabulary. I think limitations are really good in any design process. Uh, what is your famous, favorite? Otherwise, there's too many choices. Well, Lars von Trier. Yeah, the, the Five Obstructions. It yeah. was a, a movie Lars von Trier made where he made his mentor uh, do five different versions of an early piece of his with increasingly more difficult restrictions. But that's always, it's always helpful to have restrictions in any kind of art or design process. If you say, you know, this is only done in blue, you know, then you have to really focus in and it, and it, it helps not to have to think about the other colors, although it's a challenge to work only in blue. Um, so working only in natives, uh, you know, helped limit the possibilities for me. And it also let me work in an area where I did know some things because we have been planting natives in our yard years and at least I was familiar with some of the, the bigger families and categories and names and, and the behaviors of some of them. Some of the ones I chose I've never used before, so they're a bit of a mystery. But if I had to go out and just use any Mediterranean plant or worse, like any any exotic from anywhere in the world, and if I, if I let myself be open to all those as possibilities, I would quickly go insane. Uh, Rainer and West have a nice balanced attitude towards natives. They, they encourage the use of natives and, and the creation of native gardens, but they're not absolutist about it. I think they have a whatever works. They do have a whatever attitude. works. Yeah. Um, because they point out that often, you know, if we get too passionate and obsessive about natives, it shows that we're clinging to a past that, you know, maybe doesn't exist anymore. Like if you live in a place where the soil is all disturbed and, um, well, the paved good. over, I mean, what, what relationship does, does our yard have now to what this place was 200 years ago? I'm not. I'm not really sure. It's a lot hotter. It's drier. Uh, you know, it's built. The soil is disturbed. The everything's brought in. The water is chlorinated. What you know? What home would those original natives that lived here once find if they were able to be? miraculously reintroduced to this site, would they be able to live on this site anymore? Yeah, and as you point out, it brings out that question of which past, the past before there were people, in which case it was a different climate, or the past when there were Native Americans here, in which case... They well, were managing it. And no one knows exactly what that looked like mm -hmm. now, some idea. Or the overgrazed... <laughs> The ranchero yeah, look, you know, look, or the orange groves. Right. I don't know. I don't know. So yeah. it's kind of silly to try to reconstruct some past that we don't know what it looked like. And, you know, we have to we have to construct something that makes sense today. And that may involve some native plants and some non-native plants. In a way, though, our, our hand was forced simply by the only decent retail nursery that we have access to mm -hmm. happens to be a native plant nursery. So that was kind of where it was at. Mm -hmm. But that's a that's a lo much longer subject. So, yeah, but we, we ended up getting a bunch of native plants. And um, we were in a bit of a hurry to install the because we had this window, it was hot, hot, hot this summer, and I, I am, I'm just not going out and working when it's 90 degrees. I'm just not. And then finally, it cooled down, and then we're suddenly in this race. I mean, and it doesn't close, cool down here till after Halloween. It's just getting to be nice now. So, but it's going to start raining in December, January. So we have this very short window in which to get 
to do our planting. This is the time of year where in Southern California we plant. This is like the spring in a in a temperate climate. So we're under the gun, just as you are in the spring elsewhere, to get everything here before the rains come, so that the rains can help establish these plants. Uh, and we're going to have very heavy rains this year, apparently, which makes me a little bit worried, although very glad to have the water. So uh, we didn't have a lot of time to put this together. If we had had more time, I think I could have done it cheaper. I would have started more plants from cuttings and seeds, but we really just didn't have time. So we had to be a little bit more like the people on the Home and Garden channel and run out and buy buy plants and pots. And we're going to hope it works. And pray that those plants and pots establish. We're talking work. about this a little prematurely because right now the yard kind of looks like a middle-aged man who's had a bunch of bad hair implants. <laughs> you mean it looks like plugs? Right. <laughs> it's, it's hard. You know, we have, again, with mentioning HGTV, we, we have this like notion like, oh, you can plant uh, plant your yard and it's going to look great. You know, and those those programs are just such liars, you know, because it's very hard to plant. I mean, you, you can plant and make it look great, but it's all false, you know, and it's really it won't gonna last. It's going to take two years for it to grow in. It's going to, well, I think it'll look good this spring. Uh, but it doesn't look great right now. It's it's all so we stripped everything down, and now I have a bunch of little plants all planted together. Um, nothing is you know everything's like five inches tall, and you know so you, you see a lot of dirt, and it's just not all that sexy looking right now. And it's hard to photograph. Everybody on the blog is like, oh, we can hardly wait to see pictures of your yard. I can barely figure out how to photograph it, and it's just not very inspirational right now. But, but it just all looks brown right it's now. Brown, it's a lot of dirt with little little, little plants in it that I hope will live through the winter. Um, and if they do, in the spring, they should take off with their growth. I'm going to throw down a lot of wildflower seed, and those wildflowers, fingers crossed, will colonize the empty spaces and um, fill those in while my perennials are still, you know, attaining their full growth. If I'm very lucky, the, the yard will look really pretty this spring. Uh, it's not going to look pretty for the next couple months. Well, I guess people will have to watch the blog, and we'll, we'll pr pr try to be good about putting up pictures. Oh, the one thing I'm happy about, though, is that my plants, I chose them. I, I wanted plants that would really appeal to insects because I wanted to feed the insect life. Um, and then the birds secondarily, like hummingbirds. Uh, but I really wanted to address the butterflies and the native bees and flies. And when I was planting, I was out there planting, for some reason, the butterflies kept visiting. And usually I don't you know, see a lot of butterflies in our yard. And now all of a sudden there's all these curious butterflies flying around and landing on the plants. Suddenly showed up. They showed nice. up like they were curious. Um like, hey, what you planting? I kind of like this. I, I did put some butterfly plant in. It's dormant. It's winter dormant, so we're not going to see it all winter. Uh, but hopefully it'll live and come back in the uh, in the spring. Um, but I put a lot of things that butterflies should like. So I hope that it will, it'll pay off and that the butterflies will be very happy next year. Well, on that happy note, I think we should close the show. Anything more to say, Kelly? Nope. I think we, we covered it. Well, if you'd like this show, please share it with a friend via email or social media. Pass it along. To leave a question, we love your questions and haven't gotten any in a while. So, But if you love, um, love this podcast, send us a question or comment. Uh, you can call us at the uh, Root Simple hotline, which is 213-537-2591. Or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We do indeed tweet. We are Root Simple on Twitter. We're also on uh, Stitcher and um, in the iTunes store where you can find this podcast. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of the books on the right side of our blog, which again is rootsimple.com. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Additional music by Roe. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you.